Good to see you all. If you want to get those Bibles out, you can open up to Acts chapter 24. Chapter 24, verse 22. We know that uh, Paul has in his heart to go to Rome and preach the gospel. Uh, This is the latter part of the book of Acts and the story of how the church spread across the world. And Paul just knew if I could make it to Rome, there's the old saying, all roads lead to Rome. And if I can get the gospel in Rome, then uh, from out of there, the whole world will hear of Jesus. And so uh, it was in his heart to go to Jerusalem uh, for a feast and everybody that heard he was going to Jerusalem, they, they heard from the Lord, you're going to be arrested there. You're going to be put in prison there. And uh, Paul said, I still have to go. I still have to go. But it was the Lord working sovereignly, or as Casey just said, supernaturally through naturally means, because in being arrested, uh, there would be a plot against Paul's life. And so to get him to safety, they tra- uh, transported him, you know, with prisoner escort, you know, uh, all the way to Caesarea, about 47 miles away on the coast. Uh, They had 475 armed guards take him there. And then it would be there that he would give a defense before Roman proconsul. And then after two years, uh, he would finally just appeal to go to Rome uh, for a trial as a Roman citizen. And so then as you read the rest of the book, we'll see he'll be on that voyage to Rome and so, you know, that, that mission accomplished kind of by the end of the book, as far as that goes, but, uh, kind of just gives you a, a summary of why we are where we are in Paul's life, where he's going to be standing before, uh, a Roman, uh, governor named Felix. And he's, he's given a testimony as to why he's arrested, why he's standing there before him two weeks ago, there before Easter Sunday, uh, we studied his first defense. And then we're going to study a little more of that relationship with that governor and, uh, uh, and kind of how it all unfolds from there. So, uh, but something we'll see verses 22 through 27 is that this passage reminds us that it is possible to be moved by the gospel and yet remain unchanged. And, and, you know, that happens all throughout the world. That has probably happened, no doubt, in this church. Think of last Sunday, Easter Sunday. God was moving in this building two services. Some 22 people were baptized up here on this stage and have made, made proclamations that Jesus is their king. And maybe you were somebody that sat here and the Lord was reasoning with you that you needed him as a savior and you maybe got emotional and you saw those kids get baptized and you saw big men in boots coming up and getting dunked, you know, and, and, you know, you were stirred and you had a, a tear, you know, and, uh, and yet nothing changed in here. And, and that would say you're still unchanged. There's work for God to do in your heart. And I pray today would be a day where the Lord would convert you uh, from being a, a child of lawlessness and a, a wicked one to being someone who's saved, born again, and a son of righteousness. And so uh, that's what the Lord's heart is for you. He wants you to be, it's an ugly word in this day and age, isn't it? Converted. Oh, what are you trying to do? Convert. You know, it's like, yeah, that's a good thing. Converters are good, right? Uh, sometimes you really need a good converter. And, um, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. He changes us from darkness to light. 
uh, and from being wicked uh, to righteous by his grace. Uh, This story is also a model for us and how the church can confront the world. And all of us desire to be a light out there in the world. We want to be those that are sharing the gospel with a broken, hurting land. And uh, even just studying this week, I was just convicted on how the Lord wants to turn it up another notch on uh, how we're confronting the world in their sinfulness. Let's look at verse 22 today. But when Felix had heard these things, that was Paul's first defense Having a more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. And so here we have Felix. Uh, This is our second week looking at him. Uh, His name means happy. Uh, Last week I mentioned, it just sounds like a cat name to me, you know, Felix, maybe Heathcliff is what I'm thinking, but Felix sounds similar to me and uh, it sounds like a cat name, but it means happy. Uh, And so here's this happy governor who once was a Roman slave. His brother Palos became a personal friend of Nero and as a favor to Palos, Nero pardoned Felix and placed him as governor over Judea. You remember Roman historian Tacitus said Felix was a master of cruelty and lust. Kind of ironic though, right? Have the name um, Felix, you know, it's like the Cheshire, is it Cheshire cat or whatever? Alice in Wonderland is just like big old creepy smile, you know, master of cruelty uh, and lust. He exercised the power of a king in the spirit of a slave. And I don't know if it was after his first hearing with Paul that now he had a more accurate knowledge of the way of Christianity. A couple times in the book of Acts, we see that before we were called Christians, we were called the way coming from uh, Jesus, you know, saying what? I am the way, the truth and the life. And perhaps it was after this first encounter with Paul that Felix had a more accurate knowledge now of Christianity. Paul would speak of the hope of the resurrection. And that would be something that, you know, would definitely educate Felix as to what is so powerful about this faith, about the way. And so he had knowledge uh, to some degree now, an accurate knowledge of the way. And again, this is a reminder to us that knowledge of facts is no substitute for knowing Jesus. I was a youth pastor for eight years in Corvallis uh, and just some sweet memories there as a youth pastor. But as a high school pastor, there was a school in North Corvallis called Santiam Christian School. Very popular school. Many kids attended it. Really great sports program. And uh, I was always grieved though And how many kids would be sent to this Christian school, but were unconverted in their hearts? You know, they were there and they were getting the education and they were getting the facts going on. And, you know, you could do a little Bible trivia time and they would know all the answers to all the questions. And yet they had never responded to the answer to those questions. Jesus They knew that the answer to every Sunday school question is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But they had never called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and saved. And 
grievous to me because some of those kids I know to this day are not following Jesus, you know, and it's been 15, 20 years. And, uh, and with that, uh, many, you know, right out of the gate, graduated high school, went to secular universities, listened to the critic and skeptic professor bought into the, you know, just the lies and deceptions that they spoke concerning the world views of the world and uh, went on, can name a number of them, marrying non-Christian uh, people, individuals, Muslims, you know, atheists, and that's the direction their life has gone. And it's so grievous. And it just has always just been a reminder to me that you can have all the facts down and, you know, come first place in the Bible trivia, uh, you know, games. But if you never let the Holy Spirit transform your life, if you never receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he came into the world to save sinners, that's me. And, and let him do such a saving work, then you'll find yourself in a place that Felix will find himself in by the end of the chapter. So he had an accurate knowledge of the way, but that's not going to change anything. Even we'll see it today. Uh, David Guzik says, Felix avoided a decision under the pretense of waiting for more evidence through the Roman commander Lysias. But Felix clearly had enough evidence to make a decision in Paul's favor since he had a more accurate knowledge of the way. So having the knowledge didn't change. He wasn't standing up for God's servant here. He wasn't standing up for God's messenger here. He was procrastinating. And that's something we'll see of Felix in the chapter. He's a procrastinator. Moving on in the text, look in verse 23. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. So because he was a Roman citizen, he would have some rights as a prisoner, put him under house arrest. Many house arrest prisoners would have quite a bit of freedom and liberty. And in this case, uh, he was allowed friends to visit him and it seems that he was taken care of. One guy once said, the club med vacation on the Mediterranean Sea begins for Paul here. It's going to end up being two years that he'll be in Caesarea. The next verse 24 says, and after some days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning faith in Christ. And so we're going to be introduced to a new character in the story here, his wife, Felix's wife named Drusilla. Uh, sounds beautiful. Uh, three wives Felix had, and out of those three, two of them had the same name, Drusilla. So if you were Drusilla in Judea and Caesarea at that time, you might want to avoid uh, this guy, right? He had an eye for the Druze, uh, an eye for the Drusilla. In the book Life of Claudius, Suetonius, a fam famous biographer, informs us that Felix was married to three princesses, and unfortunately we only know the name of two of them, both with that same name. We're to believe Tacitus, the first Drusilla, was a granddaughter of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Drusilla was a lot like her name sounds. If you were to just Google the name and look up the name, the first two hits come from Drusilla or Drew from the young and the restless, who was a sexually immoral adulterer. 
had an affair and had a child with her brother-in-law, although it was attributed to too much cough medicine. Uh, and the next individual that's hit on uh, a Google search comes from a character on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who's introduced in an unconventional but equally dangerous way. Uh, she's a young psychic in Victorian London with the potential for sainthood. Drusilla was driven insane by an angel before the angel eventually turned her into a vampire. So those are the top two hits on who who's this Drusilla. Um, and you know what? Her life is could be right up in those categories of the soap opera and uh, the vampire drama. Uh, because we have this ancient Drusilla from Paul's day, known to be beautiful. Uh, the historians say that she was a ravishing beauty, but she was also a wicked woman with a wicked heritage. Her great-grandpa was Herod the Great, the one who sought to kill Jesus uh, in his childhood. Her great-uncle was Herod Antipas, the Herod who killed John the Baptist. Her father was Herod Agrippa I, who killed the apostle James and tried to kill Peter. And as a teenager, she was married to a prince from Syria until she got fascinated with the occult. And then she became a vampire. No, I'm just joking. That was, remember, that's someone else, all right? Now, history tells us that Felix fell in love with this beautiful Drusilla, who was already married to the Syrian prince. So Felix hired a friend who was a sorcerer named Simon. Interesting. There's a Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, right? Interesting. Uh, And this Simon the sorcerer convinced Drusilla to leave her Syrian prince husband and become Felix's third wife. And at this point, she was 19 years old. F.F. Bruce, the historian, says Felix, with the help of a Cyprian musician called uh, Simon, persuaded her to leave her husband, come to be his wife, promising her with a play on his name every felicity if she did so. And so Felix promised felicity to Drusilla if she would become his wife. So she did. She heeded the sorcerer's advice, first becoming his lover, then his wife. And history places their marriage just before this passage in Acts 24. Um, all of that drama had just unfolded. So perhaps there was still the tingling of the conviction of the Holy Spirit that there was something wrong in their behavior and their lifestyle. So here we find them sending for Paul and hearing them concerning something so important. What else would you want to hear from Paul but a matter of faith in Christ? And according to Western text, it was Drusilla who at this point was especially anxious to meet Paul beckoning him and maybe with her Jewish background she'd been hearing some things about Christianity so Paul's life is in danger and he's going to end up just going for it in this passage holding nothing back he preaches faith in Jesus Christ not backing down just like he did on the stairs in Jerusalem 
uh, when he would be carried away from a mob, he seizes an opportunity to preach the gospel. And that's something that's so key here is he knew what his message was. He's going to go right after it. You know, if you were in this position, you might try to be strategic and how to get yourself out of this prison, this jail, this house arrest. How do I get into a more favorable position and a more comfortable position? And he doesn't care about that. He cares about preaching the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Pierce, uh, Paul speaks of how we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. We're going to see how that fits into his message to Felix in just a few verses. But knowing the judgment seat is coming, knowing the judgment of God is coming, verse 11 says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, we know that one day there will be judgment. Okay, a couple weeks ago we studied the righteous and the unrighteous will appear before the judgment of the Lord. Ours will be different. If you're righteous in Christ Jesus, it will be a reward style judgment like at the Olympic games. But for those who are unconverted and unsaved and unregenerate, depraved and lost in their sins, they'll appear for the wrath of God to be uh, passed down upon them. And so Paul says, knowing this, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What makes somebody stand up before a governor and his wife and just go for it, preaching sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come? Well, it's the fear of the Lord that, that provokes you to do such. John Knox was said to stand before uh, Queen Mary. And as he stood before her, he wasn't afraid in preaching. He made her quake because, uh, because he had the fear of the Lord before him. The fear of the Lord causes us to persuade men. And it's in that same passage, 2 Corinthians 5, but down in verse 16, where he says, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him no longer. And so he says, uh, essentially, because we know that judgment's coming, we persuade men and we don't look at them with vision that's only looking at the outside of them. You know, uh, that causes us to show favoritism or that causes us to not share with certain people. Uh, if we're just looking at people's faces, you know, Joshua was told, hey, don't be afraid of their faces, you know. Um, Jeremiah, don't be afraid of their faces. You know, when you're a leader, when you're a prophet, when you're a preacher, you got to be strong and of good courage and, uh, don't care about the flesh. Don't care about their social status. Don't care about anything externally. Look at their soul. You're winning their soul for the gospel. And so we want to persuade men. We don't regard them according to external fleshly status, uh, or ranking, but we're looking at, at their souls. And then um, as you jump down to 18 there, all things are of God who's reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. 
Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so Paul says, so we're not uh, regarding people according to their flesh. We know that judgment is coming, so we persuade men, and we realize we've been given a ministry. Every one of us in this room has been given this ministry of reconciliation. We are like ambassadors for the Lord, someone who stands between two warring parties and works with them to bring peace. We bring people to Jesus who desires to have peace with them. And so we are ambassadors for Christ, as if Jesus was pleading through us, we implore, we beg, we entreat men and women, be reconciled to God. And that's what Paul is going to do here. Uh, he's not looking at, hey, what's my best chance of getting out of here, working this legal system. He's like, I have this incredible opportunity right now to share the gospel with these two lost souls, Drusilla and Felix. And so I'm going to work my ambassador role not right now. And I'm going to implore them to be reconciled to God. Let's look at verse 25 and we'll see how that message went. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And so uh, his message here is strong, powerful, bold unafraid. Uh, he told the Corinthians as well in first Corinthians chapter two, Hey, when I came to you, Corinthians, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I was determined not to know anything among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness in fear and much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith should not be the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so he just, he just gets up and he doesn't work. Remember Tertullian from a couple of weeks ago, that lawyer who just was just a whole lot of fluff and trying to just, you know, use these words that were just kind of uh, eloquent and a little bit tricky and, you know, all these things. He's like, man, I just, it, I was weak. I was trembling. You know, I was crying and I was just telling you like it is the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. And in his message here to Felix and Drusilla, he's going to make it clear that the gospel has ethical implication. And this interview with these two uh, takes a surprisingly personal turn as Paul reasons about three different things here. Uh, before we get into those three things, this is a word, this reasoned. It, it's happened many times in the book of Acts. And it describes how Paul would communicate with people. It's the Greek word dialogomai. Do you remember that from a few, the past weeks in Acts? Dialogomai. So he dialogued with people about the gospel. It speaks of discussing and arguing. And he would have a dialogue about three things. The first thing here is righteousness. So imagine just in front of the the royal court, if you will, or the governor's court, Felix, Drusilla, beautiful, powerful, stunning, you know, wealthy, put together, all appearance of, you know, got it all figured out. 
And, and Paul is going to speak a message that's personal, right to the heart. Righteousness, number one. What is right and what is wrong? A little bit like John the Baptist, right? Standing before Herod and speaking about how his affair with his brother's wife was inappropriate. Remember John the Baptist spoke that message to Herod? And Herod liked John the Baptist, so he kept him alive and was like, yeah, you're kind of right, but you know, can't have you going around telling everybody that. And it was, um, it was that adulteress with Herod who asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter through her daughter, of course. You know the story. Uh, very similar here. Oh man, I, I like what you're saying, but man, hard to hear. Righteousness, Paul said. Felix, Drusilla, you know what's right. You know what's wrong. When speaking about righteousness, Paul would speak about, one man once put it, right standingness before God. When we speak to people about righteousness, we're speaking about right standingness before God. Are you right with God? What a good question to just ask someone to break the ice and cross over that uncomfortable line of small talk into, I care about your soul. Are you right with God? You know, oftentimes brothers or friends will have a disagreement. And then what do they say kind of at the end? Like, we're good, right? You know, yeah, we're good, man. You know, as they reconcile, like, hey, are you good with God? Oh yeah, I'm good with God. How are you good with God? Are you righteous? Oh, I mean, I've done things, you know. Oh, (laughs) great foot in the door to discuss the righteousness of God. And for Felix and Drusilla, though they sat in royal robes, Paul would speak to them that they were clothed in robes of filth and sin. Romans 3.23 is a very simple little phrase here. All have sinned. All have sinned. And their robes were filthy. Paul would tell them is Isaiah 64, six that says we are all like an unclean thing and all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So if I were to ask you today, are you right with God? Oh yeah, I'm man. I'm We're good. You know, why, why are you good? And if your answer has anything to do with you and yourself and your actions and your behavior, you're already missing the mark. Because we are only right with God because of actions that were done outside of ourselves through God himself. Jesus Christ has saved me. It's his grace. It's by his grace, not by works of righteousness that we have done. Titus is, is told by Paul. But by his grace. And so rest in the righteousness of Jesus. All of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. On my best day, my best works and best obedience are not enough to deal with my sin problem. They're not enough to wash me clean. My best day, my best works and my best righteousness, they're like filthy rags before the purity and the holiness of the righteous God of heaven. And if there's any chance for that spot to be removed... Uh, It's got to come through the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses sin. That is what we rest on. What a wonderful hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. You know, you know the hymn? And man, when I stand before the throne complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips will still repeat another hymn. And so we understand our righteousness, Isaiah says. They're like an unclean rag. We are all like an unclean thing. We all fade as a leaf, Isaiah tells us, 64, 6. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And perhaps Paul said something like this to Felix. Today you can be clothed in Jesus' royal robes. Today you can be washed as white as snow, pardoned for your sin, be a brand new creation in Christ. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Felix, if you're not righteous by Jesus' blood today, you need to know that the wrath of God from heaven is against unrighteousness. You're in a place where the wrath of God is upon you and it's building up like water against a dam and one day that dam will burst and break and the torrents of the wrath of God Almighty will be poured out upon Christ rejecting sinners in their unrighteousness. Felix, Drusilla, do you hear this? Today you can be forgiven and clothed in righteousness. But if you persist in your own self-righteousness, there will be destruction. Reasoning with them that they'll either face Jesus as their savior or their judge. Romans 3.21 says that the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. That just tells us that the righteousness that we're looking for, it doesn't come by keeping the rules of the law. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It goes on to say, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So where does righteousness come from? Where does right standingness with God come from? Not by my labor, not by my works, not by keeping the law. It's apart from the law. The Bible tells us that, but the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, it couldn't be for me. I've done so many bad things. I'm so, man, I, I'm, I'm from, you know, I'm an unclean man from a family of unclean men. There's no way that this grace could be for me. And it says there in Romans 3.22, it's to all and it's on all who would believe. And if you would believe in God's grace towards you, you would be declared righteous. The second thing that he reasoned with them regarding had a dialogue with them about was self-control this might have been the thing that really got them moving in their seats kind of uncomfortable you ever been uncomfortable hearing something and start kind of wiggling and scratching your face a little bit and you know propping your knees on your elbows and elbows on your knees and you know gosh this was uncomfortable to hear as they came to the subject of self-control because their whole lives had been marked from by unbridled lust. So different from us though, right? I mean, what a bunch of pagans. We, have got, we are wholesome, wholesome Americans, right? I would venture to say 99.99% of us in this room, 
at one point or another had that mark upon us of unbridled lust. And Felix and Drusilla fit that mold as well. Felix so lustful, he manipulated another woman to become his wife. Drusilla so lustful, she heeded a sorcerer's scheme to leave her husband and marry Felix. Self-control. Self-control, a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 tells us. Those who are born again and have the Holy Spirit dwelling and living within them, they will begin living lives of self-control. Because that is a fruit of God in your life. Beginning to say no to sin. Beginning to master yourself. Uh, the lack of self-control is a mark of a wicked man. And 2 Timothy 3, 1-6 through 6 tells us, From such people turn away. If you're around someone that doesn't have self-control, that is not a friend to be spending time with. Uh, turn away from such a person. Proverbs 25, 28 says that whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. The dangerous place to be. Second Peter 1, 5 says, For this very reason, give all diligence to add to your faith virtue and virtue, knowledge to knowledge, self-control to self-control, perseverance to perseverance, godliness to godliness, brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness, love. So these are just wonderful attributes that Christians, as they're born again, filled with the spirit, learning to know Jesus, walking in his ways, seeing how the past life was putting off those things putting on the new man, recognizing that there are these attributes and these qualities that are godly. We put them on and we begin to add to our faith and, and clothe ourselves in virtue, knowledge, and self-control. Just a Christian is someone who becomes a disciplined person who says, okay, so I notice my life has been marked with just just letting my body have whatever it wants, whenever it wants it, with whomever it wants it, however it wants it. And now it's time to work discipline by the power of the Holy Spirit in my life and, and not let myself do that anymore. So I'm going to be cutting these things off and out of my life and turning it off and disconnecting this and, you know, dropping this membership and this and that and all these other things and just working towards uh, righteousness in my life. Uh, working out salvation in fear and trembling, as Paul says. But then Peter also said in that Second Peter 1, we're in verse 8 now, for if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and for, has forgotten he's been cleansed from his old sins. And so self-control being one of those attributes, if this is yours and you abound in self-control, then you won't have a barren life in Christ. You won't have a barren Christianity. You won't have an unfruitful Christianity. You'll have knowledge of Jesus. And I just wonder, maybe some of you are like, man, I just, I don't understand this stuff. You know, I've been coming to church. I've got a Bible. I carry it around. I don't know it. I don't know Jesus. I just, and I would just say, man, since you believed in Jesus, have you been begin walking in obedience to Jesus now. I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, those who believe, obey. 
All right. So it's not obedience that saves us, but now that we're saved, we obey and we'll have fruitful knowledge of Jesus uh, as we walk in obedience. The third thing, so righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. He spoke to Felix and Drusilla that there will be judgment against unrighteousness, against those who do not practice self-control. Paul preached clear back in Athens in Greece in Acts 17, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day that he'll judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's ordained. And he's given us assurance of this by raising him from the dead. And so he, he just spoke of this. There will be a judgment. We know it's coming. Something that assures us there's going to be a judgment is the resurrection of Jesus. Like he is on a mission. He accomplishes the things that he says. Felix Drusilla, he, you know, I'm going to point you to the book I wrote called Romans 14, 12. Each of us will give an account of himself before God. Or Hebrews 4.13, there's no creature hidden in his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him. We must give an account. Drusilla, Felix, you think that your affair and the things that you did are, are hidden from the Lord? You're open and naked before the Lord. He knows what's going on. He knows that you're not righteous. He knows you haven't been practicing self-control. And take it from 2,000 years ago, Felix and Drusilla, and bring it here to Prineville, Oregon. He knows what's been going on behind closed doors. He knows. And you'll be judged. And so turn to him today. Repent. Confess your sin. Bring a brother and a sister into your life. Let them know what's going on. Let the dark places of your heart be exposed and illuminated so Satan doesn't have a foothold anymore. Those chains will be broken in a moment as you confess your sins to one another. There will be no more power against you. The Lord will break that. You'll have the victory. There will be a judgment. Felix, I stand before you. My case is undecided, but you will stand before God and he will decide your case. And the case against you is solid, strong, and undeniable. Revelation 20 tells us, of this judgment day, it's verse 11, where John the revelator says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. There was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great standing before God and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the book. The sea gave up their dead and who were in it. And the death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we see that on that day, on judgment day, there will be two books open. One book that's open is the record of all the works that you've done, good and bad. I want to tell you right now, that's a bad thing. 
It's not a good thing. Oh, sweet. I hope my time in the Boy Scouts was put in, you know. I hope my time in the military was put in there. I hope, you know, that I volunteered at the Seroptimus Senior Center. I hope that's put in there, you know. Hey, I just want you to know that uh, the, the bad far outweighs the good in our lives. We were born into sin and depravity with a sinful nature. We had inherited corruption through Adam. And, and that's condemning in and of itself. And, and that book is open. And what that book will do is it will condemn us. But the good news is there's another book open, the book of life. If anyone's name is in the book of life, this one doesn't even matter because the book of life, that shows that those sins have been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, let's just step aside from there. It's two separate judgments that we're talking about right now. If you have some ecclesiology, this is great white throne judgment against sinners. And it's the second book over here that tells us, hey, you also weren't in the book of life. Okay, or your name was blotted out of the book of life. And anyone whose name isn't in there, you will be cast into the lake of fire. And did you notice the clincher at the end of that section that I read? That's the important thing. It comes down to, is your name in the book of life? And so today, is, as Paul reasoned with Drusilla and Felix, today is a great day for you to be reasoned with by the Holy Spirit, to be right with God. To just say, Lord, just double check that name in that book today, will you? Will you just make sure she's in there? Because, Lord, I want to be with you. Did you notice in that Revelation passage that that day where people are cast into the lake of fire is called the second death? As if death couldn't get any deathier. There's a second death. But have you noticed if you've been around Christianity all, have you ever heard of the second birth? Have you ever heard of being born again? See, that is what Drusilla and Felix needed that day. They needed to be born again. Have a, have a new heart given to them. As Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And there's a saying that goes along with that, that if you only are born once, well, you'll die twice. If you're only born once and it was in, you know, Merle West Medical Center, Klamath Falls, Oregon, November 14th, 1981, a big old baby boy came in. You know, that's me in case you're wondering who I'm talking about. And, and that's my only birth, right? And I go through my life and I live according to my ways and I say no to salvation in Jesus Christ and I die at the ripe old age of 55, you know, or something like that, you know, and, and then we see that, well, that's my first death. But then I'll stand before the judgment seat, the white throne judgment, and I'll be found unrighteous and wicked, and I will be found that my name is not in the book of life, and I will be cast into the lake of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth forever and all eternity, and that will be my second death. Only born once, but dying twice. But the saying is also, ah, but if you're born twice... You'll only die once. Okay? If you're born again, and the beautiful thing is we may not even see that taste of that second death. Jesus Christ, come quickly. We may never die. Pretty crazy, huh? But if, if you are born again, you need not fear death. It's just like a pillow that you lay your head on to enter into just some sweet rest. And so 
hearing of righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid or alarmed. And the language speaks of he was shaking and trembling and quaking in his seat, overwhelmed with conviction, touched by the story of the gospel. Surely he's going to yield to the gospel. But sadly, sadly, he, he says, go away. Go away and come for a, a more convenient time. Though he was quaking, he procrastinates. Drusilla, it doesn't seem, had any response to Paul's message, unaffected by Paul's message. And the sad thing is, history tells us that Drusilla, a few years after meeting Paul, will go on a shopping spree to Europe with, with her child with Felix. And Mount Vesuvius will erupt and both Drusilla and her son by Felix will be caught in a flow of lava at Pompeii and be instantly and unexpectedly killed. Just in her young 20s. In her young 20s. And history doesn't seem to show that there was any impact in her life uh, of a life with Jesus. Felix answered, go your way for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And we'll have the worship team come on up. When is a more convenient time? Is there ever a more convenient time? I mean, does life ever get less busy? Is there ever anything that, that just isn't calling for our affections and our time and our wallet, you know, and, and our energy? Just, just it never ends. We just always have more to do. There's, there is no more convenient time than today. Hebrews tells us, the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me and saw my works for 40 years. I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they've not known my ways. So I swore in my, wa my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Guys, today, today is the day of salvation. Don't say tomorrow. Don't say, oh man, right now I'm sitting in this chapel. I'm sitting in this church. I'm hearing about righteousness, the need for righteousness apart from myself that's found in Jesus. I'm hearing about self-control. I know that I've lived a life it wasn't in control of itself. I, I know I need forgiveness for that. I know there's a judgment to come. I hear that I need to be born again so that I don't die twice. And you know what? I just got to get out of here and go numb myself with the buffet at the local restaurant and then watch TV. Pretty soon, just, it'll all kind of be put out of my mind and I'll just get back into my busy week and whoo, just get me out of here. I'm moving in my seat. I just got to get going. Let's wrap this thing up. If you put this off today, it only gets harder tomorrow and harder the next day, the harder the next day. You will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, just humble yourself and say, Lord Jesus, I hear you came to save sinners. Well, here I am. Save me. Just cry that out to the Lord in humility. Let him save you. 
we'll go ahead and wrap up in worship here and let's bow our head and just close our eyes and just respond to the word. Lord, here we are, God. Just one sentence in this Bible that told us what the message was that Paul spoke. And it bears weight here today in Prineville. Lord, we just pray that the conviction of the Holy Spirit would bring a trembling in our hearts and would bring fear, just a a godly fear that would hate sin. Lord, you are the God of salvation. And we pray today you would in this room draw near those who are far off. And if that's you today, and you just sense God is drawing you near, I just implore you, beg you to be reconciled to God today. Just tell him that he's right. Tell him that you've done wrong. Confess to him that you see what he sees. Ask for forgiveness. Ask for salvation today. Ask for the new birth that you heard of today. Say, Lord, I want to be born again. Work in me obedience that comes from a new heart. I want to be changed so that I don't face judgment to come and I can spend eternity with you. Rest on Jesus today. Put your hope and your trust in Jesus. And for those of you that you are a Christian, you have been a Christian and there's just such a good example for us today on how to now go out as Christians to confront the world as ambassadors pleading with the world to be reconciled to God, holding nothing back, but getting right into the, are you right with God? Oh no, Lord, would you give us hearts that would ask those tough questions Encourage and bravery to cross over that line of comfort into the uncomfortable for the sake of these souls, no longer regarding them according to the flesh, but, but of the spirit, the eternal souls, Lord. Let's stand together and we'll just close in worship. And yeah, those of you that maybe prayed that prayer to Jesus today, that you could be saved and born again. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. That's the most important, best, sweet, rich call that you'll ever make is the call upon Christ Jesus for salvation. And if you've done that, that's something worth rejoicing in, smiling about. Let the Lord just lift that dark cloud off of your heart. He's put in you a new heart. There's cheer and there's joy and there's a new life. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. That's what you've entered into in trusting in Jesus. And we'd invite you to come and speak with us after because we want to help point you on the path 
of being a follower of his. But let's just close in song. Let's close in worship uh, this morning.